Hello, and welcome to the latest in the Walkley Foundation's ongoing podcast series, which brings you the best journalistic talent from Australia and around the world. In this episode, we bring you a conversation from the Walkley Foundation's Long Form Week, featuring three 2013 Walkley Awards finalists from the book, documentary and radio categories, who came together to discuss their nominated work and the craft of long-form journalism. The moderator for this discussion was the literary editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, Susan Windham. I'm Susan Windham, the literary editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, and I've also been a judge this year of the Walkley Book Award, which has been a fascinating experience, reading most of the um, uh, non-fiction books of, of the past 12 months. It was really a satisfying, interesting job. And I'm delighted that two of the authors from the long list for this year's award can join us tonight. Um, we're here to tease out the growing role and importance of long-form journalism in Australia, not only in books, but also in film and radio documentaries. While the internet and technology have given us more information with more immediacy than ever before, we still have a hunger for stories that go deep. Whether they're investigations, biographies, historical recreations or human <coughs> stories, journalists are bringing their skills to long-form stories in increasing numbers. And given the job cuts across mainstream media in the past couple of years, it could also have something to do with the number of journalists with a bit of time on their hands. So on behalf of the Walkley Foundation and the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, I thank you all for joining us. The Walkley Awards are Australia's highest honour for excellence in journalism. The first Walkleys were awarded in 1956, and today there are more than 30 categories, including the Walkley Book Award for Non-Fiction the Walkley, and the Walkley Documentary Award. The awards are judged by senior journalists and editors who donate their time to recognise the work of their peers. The finalists were announced in October. The winners of this year's Walkley Awards will be announced two weeks from now in Brisbane, on November 28, and you'll be able to tune in to a special pop-up channel on ABC3 <coughs> from 9pm or ABC Online and perhaps see some of tonight's panel pick up a trophy. Please note that the Walkleys will be podcasting tonight's discussion, so if you want to listen back or listen to any of the Walkley Foundation's other podcast episodes, search for Walkley Talks in iTunes. And now I'd like, you to, I'd like to introduce uh, tonight's panel and have you welcome them. Um, two from my left, Pamela Williams, is an investigative reporter at the Australian Financial Review, covering politics and business. She already has five Walkley Awards on her mantelpiece, including the Gold Walkley. Pamela has written two best-selling books, The Victory in 1997 <coughs> and now Killing Fairfax, a subject very close to home for both of us, which is shortlisted for the Walkley Book Award. Paul Hamm, on, on uh, Pamela's left, is a journalist, a historian, and author of a fast-growing number of meticulously researched history books, including the latest, just out, 1914, the year the world ended. Sandakan, Hiroshima Nagasaki, Vietnam, the Australian War, and Kokoda. They've all been shortlisted for major Australian literary prizes. Vietnam won the New South Wales Premier's Prize for Australian History and Sandakan about the horrors faced by Australian prisoners of war in Borneo during World War II was long, is, is longlisted for this year's Walkley Book Award. Paul has also co-written two ABC documentaries based on his work, so he's doubly qualified for tonight's conversation. Hayden Keenan. Thank you for making it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Has been making films since the early 1970s and specialises in left-field Australian stories. The first feature he produced, 27A, made the then 22-year-old Hayden the youngest ever winner of an AFI award. This year, his film with Gay Steele, the producer, persons of interest about four Australians who were investigated for years by ASIO, is shortlisted for the Walkley Documentary Award. And Sarah Dingle at the far end is a producer and presenter with ABC Radio National's investigative radio documentary <coughs> program, Background Briefing. She has, sorry, she has reported for many of the ABC's flagship TV and radio current affairs outlets, including 730, 
AM, PM and The World Today. She won the Voiceless Media Prize last year and was the ABC's Andrew Ollie Scholar in, in 2010. She's shortlisted for this year's Walkley Award for Best Radio Documentary, Feature, Podcast or Special for The Family Trap, her sensitive and powerful report into child sexual abuse within the home. Now we've got four people talking about four very different subjects in a short time, so I thought I'd start by asking each of them, and you will have time to ask some questions too, but I thought I'd start by asking each of them um, just to tell us a bit about the, the content of your work and why you chose this particular story as the one you wanted to put your time and great amounts of effort in. Perhaps, Hayden, you'd tell us how, how you came <coughs> on your story and what is it about? Um, we've got four films. Each episode, we give someone their previously secret ASIO file and ask them to answer the allegations contained in it. About six years ago, I was sitting in a, an anonymous backyard in Melbourne and someone handed me a, a tattered a uh, folder of papers and said, have a look at that. And as I flicked through them, I saw height, weight, parents' names, mother's maiden name, eye colour, uh, the last five addresses the person had. And then I turned to page nine and there was a conspiracy to blow up Captain Cook's new endeavour with Jellignite and divers. And I asked my friend, what is this? And he said, it's my ASIO file. And... As I started to look through it, the, the banality of the thing was quite overpowering. Um, and as filmmakers do, I put forward to the ABC um, four projects, all of which, coincidentally, they happened to be doing similar projects of and thanked me very much and wished me all the very best with whatever else I went on to. And I then approached SBS and the ABC with persons of interest. And in 45 years of making films, I've had to do the most extraordinary things to get money to make a film. And I walked in the door, and it's one of those ones where I could condense the thing into one sentence. Each week, we give someone their previously secret ASIO file and ask them to answer the allegations in it. And they said, how many can you give us? And for the first time in my life, I had two networks interested. Normally, they say, pitch it to the hall porter and we'll see what he thinks. Um, and SBS uh, came to the party and uh, suggested we do four. And the, the fun and games began then. And if I'd known how long it would take and the milestone I would descend into, um, I'm not sure I would have done it. But then I don't think anyone considers that. And by the time you're in, um, there's no way back. So uh, it, it has been a, a, an incredible journey. And um, uh, we're deeply honoured, really blown away, actually, to have some hard-nosed professionals look at our work because it was one where looking at the files and spending a week in the NAA just reading files just to get a feel for it, a ghostly voice like the HAL 9000 computer in 2001 starts to emerge from this paper, and it's a really scary voice. Um, but it's a totally interconnected world, and like the, 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 the lives of others, you start to see the, the big picture and the connections of, of thousands of ordinary Australians who were seen as a threat to the state. Um, could you perhaps just tell us which four people you chose and why. They're, they're all very interesting stories, just briefly. Uh, episode one is Roger Millis, who was a journalist and a great author. Um, and his story is uh, one of father and son who are both communists. His father was a secret communist and Prime Minister Ben Chifley's election manager um, at the same time. Um, and ASIO decided that this family, this bloke, as a cupboard communist and the Prime Minister's election manager would be a perfect target to link the ALP to the KGB spy ring that was operating out of Canberra at that time. Father and son uh, 
proceeded to maintain their beliefs until early 60s when they fell out and the old man became a radical Maoist and the son followed the more conservative um, uh, Soviet line and their lives, like some Shakespearean tragedy, were torn to pieces as they lived out this separate line. Episode two is Michael Hyde, the Monash bomb throwers, with Albert Langer, who last year changed his name to Arthur Dent. Um, and uh, that's the story of uh, the, the demonisation of 250 Marxist-Leninists who were very loud and had no capacity whatsoever. Uh, episode three is Gary Foley, uh, 1928, the Third International required all communist parties to support the indigenous land rights in whatever country they were. Consequently, ergo land rights was a front for communism. Um, and Gary's uh, episode is quite extraordinary. Um, and episode four is Frank Hardy. And naturally enough, he can't answer the allegations, but his son Alan and his granddaughter Marik Hardy uh, represent him in going through the file and his story is the the story of the left really uh, what do you do when your faith turns out to be placed in a mass murderer and uh, Frank really brought down uh, the weight of ASIO in his victory in the criminal libel case in uh, Power Without Glory ASIO suddenly started to see the power of culture and they became incredibly interested in what they call um, uh, opinion makers, journalists, writers, and folk singers. <laughs> uh, and they kept a very close track on folk singers, and until the late 70s, journalists who wrote editorial or major pieces all had security clearances done on them. Uh, Fairfax and David Syme passed on uh, details on all their journalists to ASIO, and uh, if you went for a Commonwealth Literary Funds uh, grant, it was cleared at prime ministerial level, starting with Robert Menzies. And uh, there's one young chap, uh, uh, Michael Dransfield, a poet, who got an ASIO file because he wrote to the Sydney Morning Herald suggesting marijuana should be decriminalised. We'll come back to the intricacies of all this, but Pam... Writing Killing Fairfax, why did you decide to write about your employers in this rather incendiary way? <laughs> well, um, if, if I can just first say I'm totally in awe after hearing um, yeah. Hayden's stories. They're just amazing. Um, so uh, how did I come to write Killing Fairfax? Look, I, I think that, the, you know, the, the title um, sounds perhaps, uh, you know, it's a startling title, but, of course, it's a fairly journalistic sort of use of of something that's in the beginning of the book and and various people have a meeting early in the book and uh, they, they talk about the role they believe that they played in damaging a company that has been one of the greatest, you know, backbones of, um, um, you know, supporting uh, a civil society in which we live, which is Fairfax, the company I've worked for for a very long time, in fact, since I think around about 19... 85 or 86 and I've been at the Financial Review since 1987 so a, a very long time um, so how did I come to write this book I I had been out of Australia for a few years in the early 2000s and uh, my role living in New York City so I had missed some of the things that had happened in Australia some of the stories and perhaps we'd all missed some of them um, particularly in the way media changed and the way that uh, no, now I'm too close in the way that media changed um, with the advent of the internet um, and Fairfax has been a company that's had this extraordinary business for so many years um, lo the Sydney Morning Herald's older than the New York Times as I'm sure many of you know and of course it was a business that has been built on not just the journalism but advertising as well. Cheap little bits of advertising called the classified 
ads and everybody knows how big the Saturday papers would be. As I've said at one point in the book, you know, they could break down your front door if the, pa the Saturday paper was thrown with sufficient force by the paper boy. You know, those papers could be this big um, and perhaps in two parts. And they're very, you know, powerful, not only in their physical force, but in the role that the journalism that wrote on the back of the classifieds delivered to the society we live in and also the pure financial force of the business model, which was this rivers of gold, it was called, as, as many people know now. So I had been out of Australia for some time, but I am by, by trade an investigative reporter and I have been for a long time. And it's my role on the Financial Review to sort of go and find something and get the end of something and sort of keep pulling at it and follow it where it will take me. I don't really ever start with an idea that I I know where I want to get to and I'll just get to that place however the journey goes. I work the other way around. I start at the beginning with perhaps, you know, a bit of a glimmer on the horizon or a set of questions I feel can't be answered or something that entices me or my editor, I hasten to add, and off I go and wherever the trail takes me is 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 the most interesting part of the journey you know it's the research so i i was out and about last year and i had known some of the uh, the young moguls from writing profiles of them from the other big media dynasties and of course there were the three dynasties for so long the murdochs the packers and the fairfaxes the fairfaxes have long left fairfax now the family but nevertheless, the, the company retains, you know, has retained for so long so much of the identity um, and the independence that it, you know, that was fostered on the back of these rich rivers of gold that the company could afford these massive um, metropolitan newspapers that could compete with each other internally in the company, and we'd all, as journalists, you know beat down the doors against another newspaper in our own stable, you know, to, to get the story first and to get it better. So we were a very rich and powerful company. So as the years have gone past, we've noticed that, of course, that we're all having cost cuts and media companies around the world are cutting and uh, Fairfax has had to cut very, very hard because the classified advertising ran away and it ran away with the internet. And what occurred to start me off on the book that's called Killing Fairfax, Packer, Murdoch and the Ultimate Revenge was a lunch that I had with James Packer and Lachlan Murdoch in which they, uh, they talked to about over lunch about the efforts that they'd made to, uh, to damage Fairfax and the way that they'd invested in the early internet classifieds. And, uh, I thought, well, I don't really believe this, you know, they're a couple of bragging um, scions, and, uh, but I was kind of tantalised by the idea, and they insisted that this was true, and I thought I'd go and, and just start to have a bit of a look into it, and so I got the hold of the beginning of the thread, and by the end of it, um, I found that in actual fact that it was true. They had, with the great venom and the sort of anger and rage that has been fostered up through the different media dynasties in this country over decades and decades and decades and through these families with this competitive rage and this sort of score settling and um, you know ways of trying to undermine each other and we you know amongst all of the companies particularly the Packers and the Murdochs um, as dynasties so I, I wanted to track that and I found that in actual fact there had been a lot of missteps during the internet era by Fairfax and we had missed a lot of opportunities but much more extraordinary to me as a writer and as an investigator was the fact that in fact the the young guys from those two other companies um, who had of course started their brilliant careers um, with the company OneTel um, if we're looking back to the high point of um, uh, investments that Lachlan Murdoch and James Packer made. OneTel was an, a famous investment they made where massive funds and money were, of everybody were lost. So I was startled to find that they'd actually had some pretty good investments as well and that they had in fact a sort of outrun Fairfax through the internet era. And so it was the story of how that happened and the origins of the, the anger and the score settling that for me made a very, a very tantalising story that I wanted to tell. 
no matter where it took me. So in the end, it took me to the words of the end, and I was very happy. <laughs> did, you, did you ever think about just doing it as a series of stories for the Thin Review, or did you always think, this is a book? I, uh, it's an interesting question. I did wonder about doing it as a series of stories, and when I um, had managed to get both Lachlan Murdoch and James Packer to tell their parts of the stories, and I hasten to add, as did the founders of all of the main internet companies who did actually end up stealing Fairfax's classifieds. You know, I call it stealing because I still work there. They would say they just, you know, beat us, you know, hands down in the market. But uh, I did wonder about writing articles, Susan, but um, I then felt that once that the story was too big and, and strong and the muscularity of having the scions of those dynasties uh, prepared to talk at great length if I was going to be writing, you know, the whole story, seemed to me that that was the way to go, to turn it into a book and tell it, try and tell it as something of a thriller of, you know, these sort of companies vying and fighting with each other. And I felt that it would be far too truncated, even though I do write very long stories for the Financial Review. You know, I sometimes write seven or 9,000 word stories, so they're very long and deeply researched pieces. But I sort of felt that I, I had not wanted to write another book again for so many years since 1996 <coughs> because I'd found it such horrible torture. <laughs> I honestly don't know how Paul does it over and over. I had found it such ghastly torture that I thought I would, I swore I would never do it again ever as long as I live. But this story got me over the line and so yeah. that was what yeah. happened. Well, it's an extraordinary story arc. So we'll come back to the detail with which you tell it. But Paul, yeah. speaking of awe, I'm in, in <laughs> awe of Paul Ham because he is not only a very accomplished journalist who's worked as correspondent for the Sunday Times for <coughs> many years, but he also seems to be able to turn out these fat, beautifully researched histories every year or two and uh, also started his own sort of internet publishing company and uh, does all sorts of other things. Paul. Why did you decide that the, I suppose, relatively well-known story yeah. of Sandakan was worth telling again? Sandakan or, or yes, Sandakan. Yes, this yeah, is the yeah, one sure. where um, we're talking about yeah, today. Yeah, of course. Because um, he's already got yeah. 1914 hours. Yeah, so we talk about yeah, so this yeah, one. But this is the one that's <coughs> short um, on, on the long list. Well, I, I, uh, I mean, I had, um, with all my books, I have a view that um, there's uh, something missing. Uh, I won't apply that to 1914 because there have been thousands of books about the Great War. Um, that's a different case. But particularly with uh, Sandakan and um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the, the, uh, the, the information that we've received over the years um, from various sources seems to me to be distinctly lacking in, uh, in answering certain fundamental questions. And in the case of Sandakan, uh, which, I, which I sat down to, to read about um, some years ago, uh, there was about three books out there. And um, there, again, you, you get this kind of... Um, in the, in the case of Kokoda as well, you get this <clears throat> sort of... Um, you see it through the lens of perhaps the Australian public rather than looking at various sides of the story and trying to figure out, well, what, what on earth were the Japanese thinking? I mean, what possibly... You're left... When you realise what happened in Borneo in 1945 with the slow extermination of 1,500 Australian and British prisoners of war sent force marched over into the mountains of Borneo. I've, tr I've walked in their footsteps and, and seen what, what conditions they were forced to walk through. They were prisoners of war and they were, they were literally force marched to death. And there were six survivors who escaped into the jungle um, and were nurtured and nursed back to life by, the, by, by friendly native people. Um, and um, how people, I was wondering, and so many people wonder, well, how could the Japanese have done this? I mean, I, the Japanese being, of course, the, the military commanders on the spot and the soldiers and, and a number of um, a number of Koreans as well. Um, it's how could they have, this, have, this have happened? And um, that was the question I set out to answer. Um, and uh, in, a, in addition to uh, documenting and chronicling the, the, the soldiers' experience, um, I think that um, the uh, I was a, I have to admit I, I at times was quite overwhelmed by the the evidence and particularly the trial um, the the transcripts from the trials afterwards as the scales fell from the public's eyes as to what happened. For example, the, one of the six survivors appeared in the courtroom 
which was just a tent in Lab, on Labuan, on a beach, appeared in the tent in front of these, his former tormentors, who they assumed he was dead. They assumed there were no survivors, so they could simply lie as much as they liked. And suddenly this witness appears, who knew them intimately for, for four years. Um, he survived this particular prisoner because, and he was later accused of collaborating, because he was a, a brilliant Mr. Fixit and he learned the Japanese language and he, 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 he sort of, he played them. I mean, he, he, he was doing things for them, but largely to try to help his fellow prisoners, I must add. But this guy, Stipkowicz, he, he was um, an extraordinary case of a man who was then able to condemn his former tormentors. And those transcripts brought out the, many of the answers to my questions because the Japanese commanders on the ground uh, collapsed and, um, and did reveal a fair bit of, of what, what had actually happened and the structure of the Japanese army at the time, which is quite uh, critical in, in understanding how, how this could have happened. Um, mm. uh, it, it, it's interesting because you um, sort of walk <coughs> the line between being a historian and a journalist, mm. but the reason you're here is that you also apply your journalistic skills um, and you're, you're on the ground as much as you're in the documents. You, you went and spent time in Borneo, yeah. didn't you? And, yeah. And, um, I mean, as Pamela says, you start with a question yeah. and, and you, you, tra you follow the trail. Um, what what, what do you bring to a book like this as um, a journalist, do you think? Well, uh, you know, uh, I got an extraordinary question in an academic um, meeting um, a couple of years ago when someone asked, uh, and it was a prominent scholar, I said, do, do you believe in actually you have to go to the battlefields? Do you, do you think you really need to, you know, like, do I need to get my hands dirty and, and go out and witness where this happened? I mean, I couldn't, I was quite astonished at that. It seemed to me obvious that you would, you would yeah. go and you would try to interview as many survivors as possible and you would, you would go to Borneo as I did with Hiroshima, going to Hiroshima. I spent a month in Hiroshima and a month in Nagasaki, sitting down with survivors. In the case of Borneo, you, have to, you can't tell the story without looking at the Japanese and the Australian and British side, but you also need to talk to the native people. because So that's where your journalistic skills come in. You need to get interpreters, you need to travel into the mountains, and we, we found what they still call pygmy tribes, you know, um, people of short stature who, who still use blowpipes to hunt monkeys and, and wild boar. Mm. He showed us how, to, how he used his... I'm just giving an example of the journalism you mm. need to actually mm. speak to these people. And this guy was in his 80s and he recalls actually with his friends at the time hunting down Japanese stragglers with his, with his blowpipe and peppering them with poison darts where these, the, these soldiers would just collapse. I mean, they were powerful. One, I mean, it was an extraordinary experience. There was another native person I met who, whose job was to, to ferry people across the rivers in their little canoes. And he, he had a, about six or seven canoes and they would... And he remembers um, putting these emaciated Australian and British prisoners into the canoes and paddling them across the river. And, uh, you know, you, images come to mind of the, the, the ferryman in, in, uh, across the river Styx. I mean, it was just uh, the most chilling place, too. It was sort of dark and gloomy, um, sort of this festering jungle. Um, and, and these, in, in the, literally, the unchar last uncharted um, forest on Earth. Um, and, and that's where we were. So, so that's what journalism means in that context. And I think I'm sure that journalists here would, would agree that that's the lengths you need to go to actually speak to the ferryman who took the soldiers across the river to their ultimate deaths. And presumably he hadn't been interviewed before? He had been interviewed oh, before had. once, but, he, but he's, he's, he had colleagues with him who hadn't been interviewed before. Mm. Um, there was a particular woman who had been interviewed before who's now known as the ring lady because she keeps wedding rings given to her by some of the prisoners. But she's been interviewed before, but I met a number of people who hadn't been interviewed before, and they were given um, Commonwealth uh, gifts after the war for their, for their assisting the Australian and British prisoners, uh, money or food or, or help with their villages, and these people were all across the, tr the trail. Mm. Um, the trail <laughs> being a euphemism for a sort of barely recognisable track through virgin jungle, uh, which many times you have to hack with a machete, literally, because it grows over so quickly, and there's not that many people going across this section of Borneo. Mm. But it's an extraordinary experience and, um, and extremely fulfilling, but deeply harrowing. Mm. It's a harrowing book to read, too. It's, um, yeah, it's um, very detailed on the, the suffering these men went through and, uh, and the cruelty. But yeah, one was a chaplain who lost his faith as he he saw such horrific cruelty that and he was praying to God for the lives of his men 
And as he progressed further into the jungle, his faith slipped away, and he just was ended up um, on his knees, pleading with the skies, pleading with with nothingness. Uh, an inversion of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He lost his belief in Christ. And this is mm. one chapter which I've, which I've dedicated to this man, mm. uh, the chaplain. <clears throat> Sarah, please tell us. Um, <laughs> I'm still recovering. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, your story is harrowing in its own way too, the, the story of child abuse in the home. Um, We've had a Royal Commission this year into child sexual abuse, but you found an aspect of it that was not part of the Royal Commission. Is that what interested you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I Late last year, the New South Wales government shut down a program which I'd actually never heard of before called the Cedar Cottage Program, which, I'm uh, sorry, I don't know if this is on, if you can is hear me. Is that working? Um, which is a, a pre-trial diversion program for first-time child sex offenders. And this was, you know, just another government program that had apparently been axed and I was covering it for the world today. So I, ma I made some calls <coughs> and I dug up a mother whose child had been sexually abused by her biological father, by this woman's partner. And this mother was distraught and she said this program cannot shut down, it is the only thing that has kept my daughter from killing herself. And I thought, what? <laughs> um, so I did the story for the world today and it stuck in my head because obviously there was a lot more going on there. Um, it's basically a program that targets the entire family, not just the offenders, uh, but the victims and the non-offending parents and uh, sort of bombards the offender with therapy and provides therapy to the others to not just punish, but actually move the situation on to some sort of place where people can live with what has happened. Um, so that was obviously, um, I kept thinking about that. Uh, and then the next year I joined Background Briefing, a radio documentary program, and the Royal Commission really kicked in. Um, and, uh, you know, we've all seen horrific stories over the years of child sexual abuse um, being perpetrated by priests, uh, sometimes by teachers or by, uh, there was a particularly horrific four corners on a, a bus driver um, for uh, disabled children. Um, and these stories are really, really horrible, but it is very easy for us to look at those stories and, and just you know, shake our heads because we don't see ourselves in those offenders. The problem with child abuse in the home is it's people like us. Um, so what I wanted to do with this documentary was basically go inside the family unit because one of the things I found when I was researching this was that most child sexual abuse is perpetrated in the home. Um, I think you give the astonishing um, figure of 70 to 80% is in the home. That's correct. That's um, from uh, Professor Stephen Smallbone of Griffith University, a well-respected criminologist, um, and uh, from another <coughs> of other sources, interviewees as well. And what Stephen Smallbone told me, which has always stuck with me, is that child sexual abuse is not a special type of crime. It is like any other crime. It's about opportunity and it's about rule breaking. And until we accept that, that it is in fact a very banal type of evil, we're not going to be able to properly prevent this because we will always see it as something extraordinary and something different and we will make exception for it. Whereas, in fact, we should be, you know, we should be aware that it can happen to any child. Um, so, with that in mind, um, I went back to my mother and uh, the mother in the story. Sorry, not my actual mother. <laughs> and uh, I said to her, "Would you be prepared to do another interview with me?" And she said, "Yes." And I said, "Can I interview your daughter?" And she said, "Yes." And I said, "Do you think your ex-husband would speak to me?" She said, "Yeah, maybe." So I interviewed him as well. And um, that was uh, probably one of the hardest interviews I've had to do in my life. Um, he said to me, meet me in a park on a rise so I can see who approaches. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, he did that because he is being charged and convicted and he has served the terms of his sentence, which involves Cedar Cottage. Um, he's been through all the therapy and now he has to um, 
even more so than a recovering alcoholic perhaps or a drug addict, he maintains very, very strict routines. So he can't let himself be in a place where there are children unless he's with someone else who knows what he's done. Uh, he has to know where the kids are at all times and know that other people are seeing him, uh, becomes a nightmare on public transport apparently, all that kind of stuff. So I met him in this park uh, and that went as planned. We started the interview, it was harrowing. Um, and then it turned out the park that we were in was underneath a flight path and also next door to a hospital with a helipad. <laughs> um, and after several sort of stop-start moments, it's very hard to pick up the trail of what exactly he did to his child. If I have to say every five minutes, sorry, can we just, can we just pause? Right. It wasn't going to happen. So uh, we went back to my car in the car park and I created a, a sort of artificial studio by shutting all the doors, leaving all the windows up. It was a very hot day and I couldn't have the aircon on. So we sat in my car for more than an hour talking about probably the worst, some of the worst stuff I've ever heard uh, with the temperature literally rising. Um, and I thought, wow, this is, this is a new career high. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I wanted to hear from the perpetrator himself, uh, not in a, a condemnatory fashion because I don't think that teaches anyone anything. We all know that child sexual abuse is horrendous. I wanted to hear from him precisely how he groomed not just the victim but the people around the victim because what happens quite often is that the non-offending parents people look sideways at them somehow it's their fault they didn't realize and what what doesn't get discussed very much is that it's not just the child who's groomed everyone else around the child is also groomed um and yeah it, it you know, it sort of took off from there. Um, I was very lucky to speak to as many people as I did, as many victims, including child victims, uh, not just the daughter in question, but another girl also younger, because the other thing that I thought, when we hear about child sexual abuse, we never hear from the children. We very rarely hear from victims. Um, if we hear from victims, it's because they're adults and it happened decades ago. We never hear the voice of a child saying, this is what has happened to me. And that, to me, was one of the most powerful things. Mm. Yeah, it was um, remarkable <coughs> to me that you got them all to talk quite calmly about what had happened. It was... I wasn't calm. No, and presumably they weren't either, but it, it was a very cool sort of story. And dramatic, terrible events, but told in a cool and unemotional way. And very powerful because of it, and I, you know, I, I admire you for, for being able to do that. I wanted to ask each of you about what might have been the hard, you know, what was the hardest aspect of the work you did, and I thought for all of you, perhaps getting people to talk to you in the first place might have been one of the, the challenges. You've all, I think all your work um, benefits from the human faces, the human voices, and uh, the detail they bring to, to the stories. Um, would anyone like to jump in? I want to hear from all of you. <laughs> what's, what's, what's the biggest challenge of what you, you did? Uh, okay. oh, look, confronting a fad of hyperventilated, narration-driven documentaries on world television was one of the hardest things. Um, confronting people who insisted that primary source material was not good enough. They wanted to hire extras to pretend to be actors, to pretend to be ASIO officers. Um, and we managed to fight them off. Um, and we stuck to source material. We stuck to the files. Um, and whilst they don't make good TV, um, a woman's voice reading them that's halfway between an Estonian sex line and uh, uh, an omnipotent voice that you cannot escape uh, puts chills up men's spines, I can tell you. Um, and then after three years' work, finding 100 hours of 16mm film 
that lay buried and people tried to stop us finding it. And it is the most mind-blowing historiographical footage you've ever seen. It is deeply banal and it is KGB operations on the Corso in Manly. It is the KGB work in Birrell Street in Bondi Junction. It is Petrov 12 hours before he jumped ship in Melbourne. Um, it is ordinary people standing on the corner of Market and George and not knowing they're in the middle of a KGB operation. It's quite scary. It is absolutely fabulous. And probably the second most difficult thing was convincing people to agree to be in the, the show. Um, uh, political science students that give ASIO the finger at La Trobe in 1969 now run, run multi-billion dollar superannuation funds. <laughs> and as one said, the allegations in this, I know nothing about the heroin dealing, I know nothing about the cash of arms, the plan for me to kill this person, I don't know who this person is. Um, uh, I did go on the run. Um, uh, and that'll be all over the front page of the Herald, and my denial will be that big on the inside of page two, so forget it. Um, funnily enough, the files have more power now than in many ways they did then. The power that they had then was the collaboration between a politicised bureaucracy, which is what ASIO was, um, and a government that got its back scratched by the intelligence service and uh, reciprocated with uh, an annual budget. Um, uh, so you ended up seeing ASIO becoming a, a de facto research department for a series of Liberal governments from 1949 through to 72. And the, the Gough Whitlam meeting the Director-General of ASIO is a spectacular file. It's a really wonderful piece where Goff has to lay it on the line and say, look, I really don't hold you guys in very high esteem. And it's written, it's a memo from the Director-General for the file. Um, so the, the getting people to appear was, was, was hard. And one of the things that you know, with the, with the journalists and with the, 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 the TV station. We want sexy people. We want, who have you got who's really well known? Um, look, you could get Philip Adams, but his file is eight pages long. The first five pages of your file are usually admin. So his file's about three pages and the poor bugger never stops milking it. <laughs> if you've got someone like Jack Mundy, he was getting 200 pages a month. A file runs to about 200 pages. And when we suggested going for Jack, ASIO came back and said, it'll take nine years to vet it. Can you narrow it down? So we thought, we'll go for the Victoria Street, Woolloomooloo years. So we said January 1, 1969 to January 1, 1972. They said, that'll take five years. So when the heavy hitters, they're, they're really monstrous, monstrous documents. And when they decide to have a look at you, as a number of my very stoned friends from the 1970s say, it's fantastic. I don't remember where I was in September 1971, but thank God for ASIO. I, I, was, in, I was in room 421 at the Holiday Inn. So the getting people to appear was, was hard, and of the four we, we spoke to, two or three uh, were not first choices. Um, we couldn't get any women to appear. It, it was really bizarre. Um, what about Meredith Bergman? Uh, she's overexposed. <laughs> <laughs> she's got a long file, hasn't she? It's not huge, actually. Oh, and and yeah. funnily enough, there are some high-profile people, and the files are not massive on them. Um, uh, the Aarons family yeah. uh, oh, have files good. that start in 1917 in London, and they are hundreds and hundreds of files. It's mm. quite extraordinary. Um, and really it was getting the people to appear and sticking to the, the very visceral sense I had sitting in the reading room at the archive in Canberra and just feeling this voice starting to come out of the files and thinking, how am I going to try and encapsulate this? And there's that, that scene in 2001 where, open the pod bay door, Hal. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. 
I can't jeopardize it. And there's that that calm, analytical voice that's that's just a bureaucrat's voice. It's totally unemotional and totally flawed. So a black activist meeting a young woman from the Communist Party at a motel is a plot between the Black Panthers and the Communist Party. Not a sexual plot for a dirty weekend in Gympie. So ASIO jeremies everything into its hypothesis, which is why it failed. So I've got thousands of pages of files and I've probably got 25 pages of analysis. And the, the problem they face, and I hope they still face, is that the, the, the raw information pouring in is so massive and so rapid that they don't have the facility and the skills to analyse it all. So with ASIO's staff numbers going up four times since 9-11 and their budget eight times, 75% of their staff are newbies. So being able to read the file, as someone said when the, I gave an ASIO officer the conspiracy to blow up Captain Cook's new endeavour, and I said, what would you make of this? He said, if I was a, a new person, I'd say, this is a conspiracy to commit an act of terror. That's what it reads as. But I've been in the business a long time, so look at it. It's Friday afternoon, look at the time, five o'clock, look at the place, front bar at the Toxteth Hotel, Gleepoint Road. Look at the guys who are talking, guys from Tranby. So there's some black guys in the front bar at the Toxteth Hotel, let's stick it to Whitey, we should get some gelignite. And he said, an old hand would do nothing about this. They'd put it on the tray and say, come back to me if any corroboration or anything else comes along, because I know these blokes and they, they do this every Friday afternoon. And what you end up with is files that are sexed <coughs> up by fractured psychologies who are desperately keen to be loved by their handlers. So you've got young blokes coming out of national service, young blokes in the university regiment at Sydney Uni, You've got men, generally they're men, they were, um, who are picked up and they always use the same question. And the question is, would you like to help your country? And when you say yes, you're in deep trouble because you get drawn into a web out of which you cannot escape. We've managed to get two ASIO agents who are volunteers to talk to us um, and a number of ASIO officers with their faces blacked out was it hard to get, get those men? Because it's very interesting. The, the, the two agents, it wasn't hard because they said, fuck them, do what you want, I don't care. It's two years jail, but fuck you. And that's what they, they were so desperate for someone to hear their stories. And they were quite, they were broken men. They were, they'd been used and abused and then as they, you know, one of them said, they, they drove up to Bendigo where I was the only Marxist-Leninist in the, the town, along with an 84-year-old school teacher, and they took me out to lunch and they said, well, this is it, mate, we don't need you anymore. And the, the Director General's done the certificate and it's all nicely printed and signed and that's to thank you. You can't keep it, we're going to take it back and put it on your file, but thanks very much. And they drove off and he said, as I saw them drive away, I saw 26 years of my life going down the road. He'd lost his wife, he'd lost all his friends. Everyone thought he was a ratbag communist and he had to come out in Bendigo and things got even worse for him. So you, you, it's, it, it was hard for them um, and it was, you, you sort of get a little awe-inspired at times and the, the officers, I expected to see some mad ideologues but they were smart um, there was one anti-communist but the rest were were smart guys doing their job um, following orders and seeing ASIO change from an old school you know boys brigade thing into a more modern situation in the the mid-70s mm. so it was fascinating and and seeing the these these broken guys really brought to the fore a balance so that we didn't just have the persons of interest and that it's not the famous people who are in many ways the interesting ones. It's the ones you don't hear about, the ones who were, you know, PhD physics graduates but a member of the party who just never got a job 
and they, they knew why they would never get a job as a physicist in Australia. Um, and just the, 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 the woman who for 30 years thought she was too stupid to get a job as a typist. Mm. Uh, she got a job as a typist and the Deputy General of ASIO went to Gore Hill to see Talbot Duckmanton, the General Manager of the ABC, showed her his, her <coughs> file and said, we don't want her as a typist. And until she got her file, she thought she was too stupid to maintain a job as a typist. It's very poignant, yeah. So in a nutshell, ASIO as such, is a total bureaucratic crap. <laughs> That's the picture you just... David said. McKnight said to me, get 007 out of your head and think Commonwealth bureaucracy. And the mm -hmm. sooner you start thinking that, the quicker you'll start understanding what's going on. No, but it's not the base, basic function of Sorry, we're, we're going to have to move yep. on because yep. we're running out of time. We, we are hoping to have some more questions, but Pam, we're going to have to tighten okay. this up a bit. But right, I'll what, be tight. What, what was your biggest challenge? I mean, just to have you sitting there saying, oh, yes, I had lunch with James Packer and, and, <laughs> and James Murdoch, um, you know, it's, uh, it's not something we all do with ease, but... Uh, or at all. <laughs> or <laughs> to get well, that far is pretty astonishing. Well, I suppose, is that my version of the cloak and dagger? I don't think I really had any cloak and dagger. So I'll just tell you very briefly about um, why I would be having lunch with people like that. And it's not a regular thing, I hasten to add. But, uh, you know, when you... I've worked in the newspaper, for, in the Financial Review for a long, long time. And intermittently over the years, um, I've been sent to do, you know, what one would always think of as, oh no, not that. Um, and on a couple of occasions it was, we want you to do a profile of James Packer. And really you do go, oh no. Um, it's not the thing that you, you, you know, it's it's for a writer or an investigator, you don't really want to go, it's a tiring idea to, to be set the task of going to pursue someone that you know is going to fight at every step of the way, who's very controversial, who's famously guards the privacy, and you're just going to have to struggle and struggle, <coughs> and who's going to try and avoid the profile and avoid the interviews, which of course is exactly what he did the first time I had to go and do a profile of him in 2006. And it ended up being a sort of a bitter sort of test of wills and him refusing. And then the next one that came around a few years later, I mean, he did finally crack. He did finally crack um, and did agree to a few interviews. So I was able to sort of bring some life into that story. A few years later, I had to do another one. Um, another profile of him when he was in the depth of lots of gambling sort of issues and pro, you know building those casinos and things and I, I when I tried to get him you know I was assigned the pro to go and write this massive profile of him and uh, again and um, he basically went straight over my head to my bosses and said um, you know I'm not you know call her off and he would write to me and say why would I do another pointless profile with you and I would write back and say by email well you know I'm assigned to do it so I shall proceed and I look forward to speaking to you you know I do hope that by return you'll um, let me know a date that I can come and talk to you and he would write back and go have you had your instructions yet from your boss to say to let this go? And mm. I'd write back and say, no, my instructions are to proceed. You know, I do look forward to hearing from you about the date that we're going to meet up. And he, you know, there'd be nothing back from him for, again for no, another few days. And I'd write and say, you know, dear Mr. Packer, you know, yet again, you know, I write to you hoping that you're ready yeah. to have a conversation. So this went on. So I had, and he did finally crack. So I got to know him a little bit. And so the, and he always uh, would spend, part of each interview abusing Fairfax and saying none of you journalists will ever, you know, none of you understand, none of you understand my business, you're all stupid, none of you got the faintest idea and none of you are prepared to take a look at it. So when I got an invitation to lunch out of the blue last year, I thought I'm going to this lunch. <laughs> and uh, they were both there and they had all this stuff to sort of talk about and I thought, and they said you'd never write it anyway. You're a Fairfax journalist. And so I thought, well, I might, that's where the, the start of the thread was. But to, to step away from that, and I just want to give you one very short sort of um, description of something I did find very difficult. It's very prosaic compared to uh, how to pull apart the ASIO files. And, you know, I'm just in awe of the two of you with these incredibly heart-wrenching um, stories you've had to pull out of people that are, must have been so difficult that I can't begin to imagine. 
A very prosaic thing that has happened for authors and journalists is that records are now being destroyed, and they're not being destroyed because they're going into ASIO files. Having written a book about the rise of the internet destroying or attempting to destroy, you know, uh, or media companies being destroyed, um, communication is being destroyed. And if you're an author and you want to go back to 2001 or 1995 or 97, and you say to someone, so what date was it? And where did you have the meeting? And you know, are you sure about the date? And you want to find these records. Everybody says, look, you know, I'll try and get my secretary to look it up, but you know, go to her. And the secretary says, well, you know, we went to a new internet server and so the old email's gone. And then you find that everything has been committed to email. Nothing is on paper anymore. Everything's in someone's old email box that's been eradicated. Mm -hmm. And as you try to reconstruct records, and I am a, a reconstructive writer in many ways, um, and I know that, you know, this is exactly what Paul does as well, so he'll understand what I'm saying. When you're reconstructing, if you don't have the verbal history that someone can remember, and these days, um, if you're going to things that have happened in the last 10 years, it's all been done by email. And people, they just get a new email address, remember this everybody, and the communication is gone. The records of meetings, people's lives, what they said to each other, the fight they had, it's gone. And so, you know, when you read some wonderful books about, um, you know, the role of the Serbs and the rise of World War One, and you read the, you know, cabinet documents going back to prime ministers and things are annotated and there are wonderful documents in libraries that you can pull out, it is not going to be like that in the future because everybody is dealing with email. So that's my prosaic contribution mm -hmm. to one of the greatest difficulties I had was reconstructing when people have stopped holding their records because they just press a button and the entire <coughs> records are gone. I hope it, um, ASIO doesn't work with digital files. <laughs> yeah. Paul, it's what, terrible to think what was your biggest it's... challenge among many? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be brief um, that uh, it was actually writing, writing this book, uh, the actual process of trying to render in prose um, a, a death march or several death marches of prisoners so how do you how do you write that in a way that is that is bearable um, and and that that was um, extremely difficult so I, I uh, how, uh, how could the reader cope with reading about a man being tortured to death effectively by the Japanese a man who had escaped and was captured and his 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 jailers um, proceeded to slowly to slowly kill him over a period of three weeks that that is a case of uh, a soldier called Cleary, who's um, got a monument devoted to him at, in Ranau, in the middle of Borneo. So how how did how to write that? And I resolved the problem by setting the death marches in the context of the overall war and looking at how um, Borneo was um, w was used by the Allies and by the Japanese as a staging post, as a, a refueling. In the case of the Japanese, a refueling place. And how do these soldiers' experiences set as can be set in the great the great landscape of the war. I mean, particularly in the context of the Chinese, for example, who, you know, who, who were, were, were utterly brutalised by the Japanese occupiers. Um, but, but finally, um, I also wrote the book in the present tense, which um, um, gave me the. I, I felt that you needed to be. They needed the immediacy. And purists, histor historians who are uh, purists and academics, would, would 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 maybe feel that this is unorthodox. But it certainly enabled me to write it in, a, in an immediate way and, and to, and to visualise it as if I was, I suppose, um, I was able to sort of, uh, as I was walking across the jungle, to, to see places where there were massacres, places where there were soldiers fell, or uh, a village where they were, they, were, they were hidden away, some escapees, for example. And it gave you that immediacy and that present tense. So that was the most mm. difficult. Interesting. Sarah? Um, well, it, it was all quite difficult. Um, <coughs> I think by far the, the hardest thing for me doing this documentary was just the descent into the darkness, to be perfectly honest. Um, as Hayden will know, when, when you're dealing uh, with audio or video, you watch interviews or you listen to them over and over again, looking for the best moment the best sort of catch in the voice or the moment of emotion and pretty soon I was hearing these things all the time just in my head. Um, I'd obviously 
established really good relationships, strong relationships with my talent to get that close to them and I maintain those relationships. So I, be I found myself becoming very involved, um, not in a... Not in a, I didn't feel that I was, you know, somehow in these people's lives. I didn't kid myself uh, that what I was feeling had, you know, what they've gone through, I can't even imagine. Um, but it, it had quite a toll on me. I stopped sleeping for a little while. Um, and it made me take a very long, hard look at myself um, because I didn't want to be gratuitous in my description of what had happened. Um, I didn't want to just take these people's stories and run away. Um, but I had to keep a distance. And I found myself, like, you get to this sort of stage where you're, like, you know, you're really involved. And I, I hit a point where um, I'd been to see the family unit, Francis, Clementine and John. Um, and I'd taken, sorry, just Francis and Clementine, I'd taken them some, some cakes or some baklava or something. Um, and then I went to northern New South Wales to see uh, the other child that I interviewed, Taylor, and her mother, Larissa. And I had to, like, drive to get there after taking the plane, and I didn't have anything for them. And after doing the interviews and stuff, having spoken to them on the phone for weeks beforehand, I left, and I just beat myself up for hours that night, going, why didn't I take them something? Mm. Um, and then I realised that, that that would have meant nothing those cakes would just make me feel better. Would make me, me feel better for driving away, knowing what they'd been through. Um, so there was this constant process of checking and rechecking myself, and God, that was hard. Mm. Yeah. How long did you work on this story? Um, five weeks. So I'm, I'm incredibly privileged. You know, I ran into it for five weeks, you know, running around in the darkness going, ah, and then I got to leave. Um, and my talent, of course, doesn't, doesn't get to do that. Have we got time for a few audience questions? Maybe one or two. We'll just try to take someone else. Um, Kurt, I'm sorry, I'm not prejudiced against you. I'm just, we've got so little time. Um, anyone? Yes, yes. Um, I have a question that's probably oversimplified, but it's something that I think could be answered by um, all of the panel here. Um, how do you know when you're onto a good story? And the second facet of that is, how do you overcome writer's block if you ever encounter that? Uh, do you, just, you just know. Uh, <laughs> it, it either it like it, it, I think it just feels clear. You know, you know what I have to decide with. Can I live with thinking about this twenty four seven for the next X number of weeks? And if I can, I do it. That's that's the test for me. What about you guys? Um, it's I, I, I have trouble seeing um, my my books as good stories. Obviously, they're they're pretty pretty horrific events, but in their historical events, so the story is there already. It's it's a number of in a number of cases you're uncovering new material which no one's seen. Particularly in the case of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which has got you know extraordinary new material in there, which shows. Which which un unravels wh why the bomb was used and, and how and, and the rationale for the bomb is, is comes under close scrutiny according to these documents. So that's that's a driving force. I mean, I actually one of those weird people who actually like working in archives for many 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 months. And you have your eureka moments when you find this document which is going to which is, which really will change our understanding of events. So that drives me. Um, and and finally, writer's block. Well, um, I've never experienced writer's block. <laughs> I don't know why, but uh, maybe <laughs> maybe I should. <laughs> I agree. Look, you, you just know there is just something. Maybe it's something about you know writers and journalists and authors is that you there is a sixth sense. It's maybe what uh, maybe it's something you develop over time, but maybe it's what you are in the beginning. Um, and there's just a sixth sense. You just know a story. You can just feel something. For example, I've got a story that's in my head that I don't know whether it's going to be a book or a massive, massive, very, very long, long-form piece. It's been there for two years. It's about something related to a flood, and I can't get it out of my head, and it has been driving me insane for two years, and I'm going to find the time to do it somehow. And I, I can't 
remove it. I just can't because I know. I just know. So I think that, that you just see there is something, and I think journalists and writers and those of you, of you who are, um, or in the media or something related to that, will know that you can be at a dinner party or you can be somewhere, if there's a particular story, you just suddenly find you're going, and you can be talking to this person, you're here at someone, you'd just be going like, yeah, uh, you, you just, it just, you just go. You just, so that's what happens. Writer's block, I hate writing. Um, I always find it difficult. You know, finishing writing and finishing something and apply, I find it very hard. And I think it's really only pure fear that gets me over the line in the end. It's the fear of that deadline that on the other side of it is something waiting. And in a newspaper, it's usually a big white space on a page. <laughs> and if I don't get there, doesn't matter what's happened to me in my life or anything else, you just have to get there. And it's almost the same with the book because there's a publisher waiting and they are frankly sick of excuses and you actually just have to do it. Yeah, no, here? look, I, oh, it's, yeah. it's something in your gut, it's yeah. something in your ego that also <coughs> says I'm the one to do the job, <laughs> um, and it's something in experience where you know that it requires just 105% of everything that you are to do the job, and you will stop at nothing to get it done. Look, I'm really sorry. I'm being given the wind-up signal here. We could have spent an hour with each of you, and uh, I'm sorry we can't go further, but um, don't forget the Walkley's on November 28th. Thank you all for coming, and please thank Hayden Keenan, Pamela Williams, Paul Ham, and Sarah Denver. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can check out Sarah, Paul and Hayden's work, along with all the finalists' work for the 2013 Walkley Awards at www.walkleys.com. The 2013 Walkley Awards ceremony on Thursday the 28th of November will be broadcast on ABC3 from 9pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates and you'll be the first to know about upcoming Walkley news and events.